Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. As part of my research into grief, I've come to know grief can be isolating and community is essential to explore, survive, and heal with grief. I co-facilitate the Pause, Breathe, Restore retreats, along with wellness coach Erin Vanderkoy. We help people engage and move forward with grief in a safe, supportive, and healing community. Our next grief retreat will be held at the Oregon Coast, November 8th through 11th. Information about this retreat can be found at pausebreatherestore.com and in our show notes. Gratitude and Greatness explores our relationship with grief, the gratitude for our humanity, and the greatness we attain when we tell our stories. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. Julia Evans left her home state of California to pursue nursing and a fresh start. I speak to Julia about how the dysfunction of her mother's mental health followed her and the grief she experienced as she lost the mom she came to care for. My mom had a loosely unhealthy relationship to alcohol, probably for her whole life. I think she would sometimes drink a little too much at night. You know, she liked white wine. It was kind of like a a fancy mom alcoholic, you know? It's like read in bed and have too much white wine sort of thing. But I never remember, besides maybe some like less engaged mothering, any distinct signs that my mom had a problem with addiction. She preferred to wake up late. Is that what you mean when you say less engaged? Like she She would frequently like call my elementary school and lie and say that we had a dentist appointment so that she could sleep in more and then bring us in late to school. Like things like that that were like not super kosher. You remember this because you're like, we're not going to the dentist. It's like I'm I can hear her on the phone in the other room and like it's nine and I'm awake and ready to go to school and so things like that that were and I think I was kind of a tv kid like my mom liked her own time she was protective of her privacy and she loved being a mom and she was a great mom she did a lot of awesome things that were super dedicated but some sort of edges of that were a little selfish still I like what you say because you know we tend to want to put people in one camp or the other camp Like she was either a good mom or she was a vacant mom. My mom was an incredibly talented artist, really beautiful watercoloring. She's a really talented embroider. She was amazing at sewing. The most dedicated Halloween costume maker and Mm -hmm. birthday party host. She would make these elaborate birthday parties where she'd set up. Each kid would have their own shoe that we were covering in glitter, like hand making this thing. And she would go up to very high levels of detail for elementary school kids in engaging them in art and arts and crafts. And Mm. all of our Halloween costumes were amazing. And I have distinct memories of splatter painting gold paint onto ostrich eggs, sitting on the kitchen floor with her doing that. It was very natural for her. And she was also a pretty sharp whiz in the kitchen. Very intuitive with ratios and ingredients and the flavor profiles of food and the way they relate 
she took it upon herself to make sure that I absorbed a lot of that. So at a very young age, I was expected to know like what a mirepoix is and what mise en place is. And she was a really amazing, cultured, super smart, funny as hell, voracious reader. She's a pretty great lady. When the recession hit, my dad and my stepmom were suddenly unemployed. And so my family was sort of struggling there for a while. But my stepdad took to the drink and started drinking. Mm-hmm. And then he started drinking more and more. It turned into a very dramatic alcoholism where he stopped eating, was only drinking. And so in about two and a half years, he drank himself to death. And so I had to not only watch that, but watch my mom go through that. Watching her watch the love of her life, not choose her and choose alcohol. Choosing is a tenuous word because alcoholism is a disease. Right. And it's not always a choice. But I think in her tender heart, she felt like he was choosing the alcohol, you know? Yeah. And even with multiple times of going through detox and rehabilitation, it didn't really help. He passed away right as I started college. And she did pretty well for a few years. She um, had stopped drinking for him. She had a really good group of friends. When did you start to notice that something wasn't quite right with mom? First two and a half years of college. She was doing great. She was in AA. She had a good group of friends. She was more in AA for the support of it. She had tried Mm Al-Anon, but it just felt off. Something really didn't engage her with it, but AA was what really... She found this core group, and she was able to find some temp work, and so was getting consistent income. Remember sophomore and junior year, went home for winter break, and just she seemed lower energy, less upkept. My mom cared very much about how she looked in public, and that had changed a little. She was always also very clean. Kitchen had to be spotless. You know, we were raised to do our own laundry pretty young, things like that, and the house just started seeming a little less organized. And she lived alone, so it was like, why? There's no real reason. It wasn't like she had hosted a big party the night before or something. She couldn't blame it on the kids. Nothing to blame it on. I wrote it off. My aunts and uncles are all really close. My mom's siblings, and I knew they lived there still, and they were still in contact with her pretty frequently. So I felt okay ignoring it because it was just too much to believe that something could be wrong. Also, what ended up being wrong was like more than I had ever imagined at that time as my mother being capable of. She was a very proficient liar. I ended up learning that about her as her addiction grew. And I do think I remember a few times being home and sort of asking if she was okay. and, And she would always write me off or blame it on something else. Later on, as her issues got worse and I was still inquiring as to, you know, mom, what's going on. I do think there were times that I just was okay with being lied to Mm. because I didn't feel like there was anything I could do. But at that early time, I do think I was like, okay, well, you seem kind of weird. I know you're sad. Your husband just died a few years ago. Like, there's no way that that is not still weighing very heavily. And work has been inconsistent and that's stressful. So I was just giving her reasons to excuse herself. And I was also in college. I was in nursing school, super busy and stressed. Senior year of college at my graduation, I remember being home. My mom was coming in from the airport for the weekend. She drives in and I hear 
all of a sudden like this super loud like clamor outside of the front of my house. I was like, did someone just like crash into a tree or something? And I run outside and my mom has like barreled into the sidewalk and like smashed over all of my garbage cans. (laughs) My mom isn't a great driver. She's never been very coordinated, not that great at following direction. I run out. She sort of seems dazed, but is acting like nothing happened. And that was really like the most sort of defining memory of something is not right. So I remember tangibly being really worried and stressed that whole weekend trying to like, oh my gosh, I just graduated from nursing school. Like I have to focus on studying for the NCLEX, which is the licensing exam for nursing. And here my mom's showing up and is definitely not stable. Mm. Graduation happens. She seems sort of fine. And then there's this graduation dinner. She knew exactly where it was. I told her, you need to leave your hotel early because she's good at getting lost. And I had a feeling something would happen. She shows up like an hour and a half late. We're already like almost done with dinner. And she has all these things to blame. She's on the wrong side of the river. The driver didn't know where to go. When she originally was driving, she just ended up like parking her car on some side road and like taking a cab. The classic behavior of someone who's under the influence of something. Mm. And I was so mad. I was mad because of the dinner. But really, I was mad because... I knew that I was now in something that I was not going to be able to get out of. Something was going wrong that was running much deeper. Yeah. And that I was going to be the one that was going to have to involve myself in that. Thank you for listening in to this episode of Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness. We appreciate you following the work we do and would love it if you'd share us with your friends and family. Your recommendation helps us reach more ears and build upon the work we're doing. Started working in skilled nursing at a facility in uh, Portland. And um, my mom decides that she wants to move to Portland. She can't find temp work anymore. She can't really pay the mortgage on her house in California. She's tired of living there. I think she's tired of the memories. And I think she was also running away from herself. And trying to start fresh. Yeah. I was not stoked. I was super against it, but I wasn't sure why. And now I know that I had this very strong intuition that this was not going to turn into something great. And that by her moving to Portland, she was going to isolate herself even more. Number one, from her family. And number two, I was the only person she knew in Portland. Where she had all this family. All this family that loved her and supported her and... So I really pushed and was like, I think you should move to Santa Rosa where all these other people are. And I think she did tour some houses and she didn't like any of them. And she was just like, I'm moving. So she got rid of a bunch of stuff in my childhood home, put it all in a U-Haul and drove up. And then from the first day that she moved, it was clear that she was totally on something. Imbalance, slurred speech, totally uncoordinated, super forgetful. Just glossy-eyed, like Mm. disengaged, flat affect. She rented a little boarding room in a house while she was looking for houses. Mm -hmm. So her goal was, my stuff's in storage. I'm living in this house, living in this room. And I'm going to look for houses and find a real estate agent. So she found this house in Southeast and promptly moved in. And within like a few weeks, she was laying in bed all day. I remember coming in and there was like, 
string cheese in the sink that was like covered in mold. It was like clear that she hadn't even used wow. the kitchen sink in like weeks. All of her boxes were still there. I was like, okay. So she one time went to the bathroom and I snuck in her bedside drawer and I found a packet of these pills that were in silver foil and it said two milligrams of alprazolam. I'm not a nurse. I don't know what that is. Alprazolam is a, it's a benzodiazepine, which is a family of anti-anxiety drugs. So I looked up the company that was printed on the packet. Turns out it had been produced in India. Okay. So I was like, okay, my mom is buying Xanax and lorazepam and all of these benzodiazepines online. This is bigger than I thought. I thought maybe she had just been drinking. So my sister comes up. We sort of help her get unpacked. But then my mom realizes, I think, in her unclear state when she originally bought the house that none of her furniture fit. So we had to repack up everything, and she looked for a new house. This was how long after? After closing. How close to after? Like months. Just a few months after buying this house. Just a few months after buying this house. She sells it to the person that was next in line because they had only been like a month or two. They still hadn't found a house that they had wanted. You moved your mom into another house. So she found a new house. The real estate agent actually had reached out to me while we were trying to find that house and was saying that she was uncomfortable working with my mom because she seemed really unstable. By that time, it was clear that something needed to happen. So I called my closest aunt and uncle and had them come up. We had an intervention And at first she had lied about it, but I had snooped through her room and found like a huge bundle of Ambien and Xanax Mm. that she had been taking and buying online. The next few years, sort of oscillating story of I lived with my mom. She was in and out of rehab. At one point she had some seizures from, I think, attempting to self-withdraw off of these meds after I'd confronted her and told her I was worried. And you were living with her at this point, too. I was too. living with her, so, so I was it's... around it all the time. She was in rehab twice. One time, she was hospitalized for about five days, and that was the second rehab attempt. And she actually did pretty well for about a year or two after that. I'd lived with my mom for a while and was looking to rent and then decided to buy a house. Mm-hmm. So my mom was still doing well. She helped me with that process. And then a few months after moving in, she started to voice some concern about her emotional stability and was feeling this sense of doom and a lot of depression. And this was like in the middle of January. This was after you moved out into your own home and and had left her to live alone Mm -hmm. by herself. Okay. So I'd supported her through that, but then she started to pull away a little a few months after that she had originally reached out. And I was busy with work. I hurt my back. I got sick and then was on like a 10-day trip to Death Valley and Joshua Tree. So we were crossing over text a lot. Yeah. A lot of text exchanges where she seemed good, but I didn't get to engage with her that winter as much as I'd wanted. And then she told everyone she was going on a trip to visit some friends, told my family that, told me that. And it turns out that she had gotten herself into a detox again, but Mm -hmm. had lied to everyone. She was down in Southern California. And she came back home. My mom was not doing super well right after coming back from this. She was really weak and fatigued. And I thought that just a few more days of, you know, eating a little more and getting back on her feet and she'd be feeling better and that this was just part of the detox process. And then the day after her birthday, 
my mom's best friend went out to sleep on the couch because they'd been sharing a bed and my mom was talking in her sleep a lot and was keeping her friend up. And then she checked on her in the morning and she wasn't breathing. Um, She had passed away overnight, totally unexpectedly. We still don't really know what happened. The autopsy just showed that she had a lot of fluid buildup in her lungs. I think addiction puts the body into an immunocompromised state in the first place, but it was still nothing really truly concrete that I could dig into and point at, you know, which is still a lot of the struggle now. I wish sometimes that it was a cancer story or she got hit by a car or something that has edges that are tangible. Right. Something that I can hold and look at and process. Autopsies really don't tell you much besides what tissue looks like and what it's holding, but there's no other diagnostic tools that can be used to give any sort of diagnosis. I was 26 and she had died and and the weight of that, the weight of not being able to say I love you, not being able to ask her any questions, the loss of time of all those years that my mom was stolen from me, the mother-daughter relationship that I watched a lot of my close female friends have with their moms, that was taken from me, never having been able to truly watch our relationship become this like really beautiful, healthy adult relationship. It's really hard to process. So there's the loss of that, the loss of the past. And then, of course, I'm in my mid-20s, you know, I'm not supposed to have my mom die. And another sort of weird juxtaposition of that is that my grandma, who's 94, just passed away. Mm. So my dad, who's 60, and me, who was 26, lost our moms in the same year, which is Mm. wild and also just feels cruel to think that, you know, in in my sort of angry phase of that, I can't believe he got 30-plus years of his mom and my mom's gone. There's something really isolating about not knowing anyone. I have one friend who was 29 when her dad died, but she got a little more time with him and knew that it was happening. And I don't know anyone who is my age with a mom who has passed away suddenly. That can be really isolating when you're trying to process your grief in a sort of familial group way when you feel like you're the only one who's gone through something. So, you're asking, how can I support the awesome work that's happening on the Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness podcast? Become a backer on Patreon. Your support allows us to deliver conversations that help to dissolve the stigma and evolve our culture around grief. You'll find a link to contribute via Patreon in the show notes. And if you have something valuable to offer our listeners, let's talk. We'd love to invite you to sponsor the show. Through my work, you know, you only get so much bereavement time. And the time that an organization decides how much time you need to grieve is generally not the amount that humans should be grieving. So I never felt like I really got the time. Like how much time did you get? Five days. Five days of bereavement. Only five days? That's it. And so right back to work. And then, so then, you know, you suddenly are dumped into being the one that's managing the whole estate and getting rid of everything in her house and all those things. So it was like a second job all of a sudden. And I 
didn't give myself the space or really know how to give myself the space because I didn't have the opportunity to. Once the estate work was done and we sold our house and sort of slowly closed all of these loops of the clerical stuff, then, you know, suddenly everything settles and you're sort of just left with this experience and figuring out how to process it. A cousin of mine I've always been really close with really reached out to me, started talking more about community ceremonies that she does that I had never heard of. There was a book by Frances Weller called The Wild Edge of Sorrow that was sort of the first one she told me about. Once you find one, you know, then you just sort of go down the rabbit hole. It just took one person to show you the way that there can be a different way of processing that. And once everything settled with my mom's estate, I really felt I had the space to delve in. So there was sort of a group of her friends that she calls it heart work community. So I was invited to join this sort of very special two-day grief ceremony. And what was the ceremony or the ritual? Would you call it? I would definitely call it a ritual. Two days straight, but it was loosely the way it went was there was about 30 people. We all came together individually, went around and shared a very brief synopsis of why we were there. There's a lot of group singing and harmonizing and connecting with people one-on-one. And then you break up into smaller groups and share your longer story. And there's time outside to sort of be with nature. And then there's the setting up of this formal altar Mm -hmm. space for many hours of the night as a group, doing a lot of self-reflection in this very ceremonial yurt space that's built out to be this altar. And with music and with this group that you've been able to get to know, you cry and you scream and you yell and you have all these people around you that are supporting you. Everybody is sort of individually processing, but in a group setting. Yeah. And then we literally did the same thing the second day. It was a really good opportunity to crack open the first layer Mm -hmm. of what I hadn't processed yet. The experience of grief is so individual Yet at the same time, we all go through it, but somehow it's still so isolating mm-hmm. for people. Yeah. And we still are so hesitant to share our experience and to be honest about what we're going through. Every month I come farther and farther away from the experience. I just process more and more about it. These grief ceremonies and the work of Francis Weller, who has hosted many grief ceremonies of his own. Every single year, these communities will do these two-day ceremonies, and it's because we're always grieving. It's not like the event just happens and then the farther you move away from it, it just goes away. It never goes away. And I think about my mom constantly all the time, being kinder to myself, being more compassionate to my experience and processing through, you know, when someone dies unexpectedly with the complex layers of addiction, there is some feelings of abandonment, feeling like I could have done more or I should have done more to try to prevent this from happening, feelings of not being in control and things like that. And so it's been a really good time to dig into the harder things. Did you find something in ritual at that ceremony that you felt you could bring home with you, that you could bring to your everyday or even bring to your your life to help you carry forward? Yeah, I think something that I found most moving about it was that in your real life, You might be overcome by emotion every so often and you look at a photo, you like have a memory and all of a sudden you're like, oh my God. And you start crying and you're sort of like wallowing and, but there's this feeling of rushing through that. Okay. I had my moment. Everyone's like, oh, you know, you feel better after you cry. But what was so awesome about this ritual was 
I mean, it was like hours long where there's people playing drums and people are moving around this yurt space and there's this altar. And when you feel moved, you're supposed to like move into this altar space and there's pillows all over the floor and you just experience your feelings. You cry, you yell, you know, you hit the pillows, you just let out whatever is coming to the surface. And then you come back into the main area and people welcome you. But then you do that over and over and you feel great. And then all of a sudden you're overwhelmed again and then you go back up and you're just like going level down level deeper and deeper and bringing up all this stuff. And then weird things start to come up, you know, old relationship, hurt and you know, sadness from somebody else dying that you hadn't even thought about. Mm. And, you know, maybe, like, I remember I was really grieving my mom's hurts from her life, and I was, like, grieving for her depression and grieving for her addiction yeah. that I'd never suffered through, but, like, hurting for her. Just these sort of nuanced layers of, I'm not just grieving that my mom's dead. Like, it was all these other things, and I was grieving the resentment that I experienced for myself. What I learned from that ritual process was that you don't need to just feel the feeling and then close that box up again. Yeah. If you are just having a day and you're like, today is just, I can't get over it. That getting over pressure that you're putting on yourself is BS. It's total BS. <laughs> and you're totally washing your opportunity to reflect and then heal. Right think about it in like a gross like nurse you know it's like sort of partially cleaning a wound and then you like close it back up and there's like still all this like Junkie. infectious material in there it's like no dude you got to like cut it and like open 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 and get deeper and get into all the tunneling and that's the only way you're going to get it up and out again to tie in that self-compassion piece of like some days are just bad days yeah and i'm just woke up sad everything reminds me of her i'm angry i'm hurting i'm really irritable Instead of rushing to shut down those feelings or feeling bad for feeling bad, to just lower my expectations of what I'm pushing on myself and just be like, you know what, maybe I do half of the plans that I thought I was going to do today. And then maybe I'm going to do yoga instead of go to the gym. And then I'm going to take a nap and I'm going to cry some more. And then maybe it feels really good to cry. So I'm going to like go and deliberately find photos of my mom and like cry even more and just like really feel. Yeah. Just like feel all the feelings and not be afraid of that. Your input matters. If you have thoughts on this episode, check out the show notes to find out how to contact us. We'd love your feedback, suggestions, or just a thumbs up. You know, you said, well, you know, you'll be thinking about your mom and how that leads to a bad day. But I was like, what a gift right. to be thinking about your mom, right? You mm -hmm. lose this person. And one of the biggest fears when you lose somebody, am I going to forget what their eyes look like? Am yeah, I going to forget what they smell like and, and all that stuff, what right? What her voice sounds like. Totally. So to remember that is like a gift or to be constantly reminded, I think it's a painful gift, but it is a gift, you know? Sometimes I think about her and I get just overwhelmingly sad but other times 
I'll like say some funny little word that she used to say and like crack myself up and be like, oh my God, hilarious. Like totally just sounded like her or like this beautiful Le Creuset pot that she used to cook out of all the time. And I'll make soup out of it and make this beautiful food. And I know that she would have been super stoked. Those become just a little bit more every time you have those associations, they're going to be a little bit more positive and to not rush that. Like that will take some time, maybe down the line I'll get there, but to look forward to that, give myself the space to just feel whatever I'm feeling. Being aware of those emotions, like you said, like whether you're grieving your own loss or you're grieving their pain, Mm -hmm. that's all connected. Absolutely. Such wisdom in it. And it feels sort of rough to have to be forced into that learning when I feel so young. Yeah. But also with time, you sort of find that getting that education early in the end somehow. I don't know yet, but it'll present itself as some really beautiful experiential truths that hopefully I will be able to share with others that I meet in the future that are going through something somewhat like this can provide sort of a warm space for them and to know and to sort of have that sense of community that we are not alone. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you turn to the grief rather than turning away from the grief, Mm -hmm. I think turning away from the grief can sometimes leave you susceptible to this victim mentality. But when you turn towards the grief, it opens you up to a more acute emotional intelligence. When you have that, I think that's one of the greatest gifts that you can have. It's so natural to want to avoid that feeling. As a human, you are biologically designed to avoid pain. And that includes emotional pain. So it's okay that you want to avoid it. I try not to be hard on myself sometimes when I'm like, I just don't even want to feel, you know, I mentioned sometimes it's nice to just dig into the feelings. And sometimes it's just I'm tired. I don't even feel like grieving. So you're just sort of like in this numb in-between place. But once you find those soft edges, can find safety in it, there's like these little secret things that pop up from it. Emotionally, we have become so detached from our need to really sit with our grief. How do you think we've evolved that way? I think definitely in America, at least, in a capitalist society where your success is measured by your productivity and then our self-esteem being linked to that, how much money we make, how productive we are, how other people see us, weakness is not tolerated here, right? It's seen as a weakness to be vulnerable because vulnerability, I think, gives other people a way in. And also even that phrasing of self-esteem, what's really interesting about this self-compassion work is that self-esteem, as we know it, the idea that you feel better in comparison to other people. And there's a sort of societal notion of, well, I'm going to make myself feel better by putting other people down. And it's those times when you feel the lowest where that self-compassion piece comes in and being kind to yourself and telling yourself, like, you must be having a really hard time. So often the hardest on ourselves, even so much harder than we are on our friends or family. Sure. Oh, yeah. It's impressive how our internal dialogue is just, you know, scathing. Yeah, right. You end up comparing yourself to other people to feel better about yourself. All that does is make you more of a dramatic self-critic. Learning to overcome this has definitely also been a challenge of developing my confidence Mm. 
mm-hmm. in a way that comes from the inside. Keeping the people that I care about close and also just taking care of them well. Taking care of your people, you will be taken care of. And that's just this cycle of positivity. You have these gifts in these other relationships you have in your family. Your mother's siblings. I always interacted with my aunts and uncles sort of through my mom. I never had my own relationship with them. You know, they'd ask how I'm doing. And my mom would say, oh, she's doing this, this, and this. But I wouldn't really call my aunt and be like, hey, Shannon, what are you doing today? It's like not something I did. I've been calling them and they're like this new subset of maternal warmth that Mm. has been so nice to re-engage with and also to see my mom and all of them. They all have this really distinct nose and they're all like have this like dirty sense of humor that my mom (laughs) had and they're all super good in the kitchen and really artistically talented and they all dance in this funny way and love the same music. And so seeing all these pieces of her in them reminds me again that even though I have been struggling with the feeling of holding on to my identity as a young adult, like when I'm just trying to make it to see that she's everywhere mm. and all of these people that she's affected so positively. And that is really powerful and is reminds me that if I look hard enough, she'll always be in the places that I need her. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn and me, Sarah Shaul. The music was by Samantha Jensen. Visit us online at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at griefgratitudegreat. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a review. Your feedback helps our show and helps us find new listeners. If you have a story of your own that you'd like to share or topics you'd like to hear more about, we'd love to hear from you. Call or text our show at 503-454-6646 or send us a message via the contact link at griefgratitudegreatness.com. Be sure to let your friends know about us and join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you.